everyone, welcome to Leukemia Chatters. Uh, I'm Charlotte, I'm the Patient Advocacy Manager here at Leukemia Care and the host of our podcast. So this month we are talking to Zoe Sarginson. Zoe uh, is a patient who was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia or AML. Um, thanks for joining us Zoe. You're welcome. So today we're going to just chat a bit about your your story and how you came to be diagnosed and also how you coped with post-diagnosis and treatment and stuff. So I wondered whether you could just start by telling the listeners a little bit about how you came to be diagnosed with AML, how did it start and how long it took to, to get to that point really? At the end of 2018, I gradually became unwell. I had a few chest infections. My son had actually got the chicken pox at the time. Um, and after he had had it, I experienced um, what I thought was a weird strain of it. I had two little purple dots on the side of my face, which I thought nothing of. Um, shortly after then, um, I had a lot of issues with my mouth. My gums were starting to swell at a very fast rate. Got to the point where I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep very well. I went back and forward to my dentist. They attempted to do a polish and scrape, thinking that might help. They couldn't even complete it. I was in that much pain. So they forwarded me on to my doctors. So I went to my doctors. They said, it's a gum issue. You've got to go back to your dentist. This went on until February of 2019. And eventually, I had an appointment with my GP. But it wasn't my GP. It was a standing doctor. And he said, you need to go and get your full bloods done. So on the 28th of February, I went and got my four bloods done. And three, maybe four hours later, I had a phone call from New Cross Hospital in Wolverhampton telling me to go in. They didn't tell me why. They just said, you need to come in. We found an issue with your blood. Bring an overnight bag. Be here within the next 20 minutes and bring someone with you. That's how it started. So going back to just those symptoms, would you say the worst one you had was the mouth infections? I was reading your story and you talked about how severe that was. Was that the worst thing, the standout thing before you were diagnosed with the infections for you? I've never really had any issues with, with my mouth or my gums before. Um, so when they started to swell, I just assumed it was another infection. because I, was, I seemed to be catching a lot of infections. But it was the end of the year and the beginning of a new one. So it's the kind of time when everyone's getting infections. Everybody's feeling a bit unwell and under the weather. So again, I just brushed it off for another couple of months. Yeah, yeah. And just to go over the time to diagnosis again. So you, you first felt unwell in December 2018, but how long was it before you decided you need to seek medical help for how you were feeling? It was pretty much straight away, to be honest. Um, the way I felt, I knew if it was an infection, then I'd need some antibiotics pretty quickly because I knew I felt terrible. Um, so it was pretty much straight straight away that I, I seeked advice from my dentist and then my doctor and then I got bounced back between them until my diagnosis. So I guess a, another aspect to your story that we haven't mentioned yet is the fact you were actually pregnant at the time that all this was happening. Um, you were already pregnant when in December 2018 when you sort of first started to think you were ill. Do, do you think that made it harder to recognize something was going wrong did you confuse any of those symptoms with the fact you were pregnant 
I had my bloods done for my 12-week checkup, and they did say I was slightly anemic, which you, you may or may not know, it's very common during the first stages of pregnancy. I was very, very fatigued, again, first stages of pregnancy. Obviously, I, I mean, I did suffer with morning sickness, and you feel quite rough after that anyway. So I think a lot of the very early stages of pregnancy where you feel tired and you're feeling really poorly all the time, that, that was that could have been confused for it yeah and I guess a lot of people think there's a a lot as you've already alluded to there's always that I think there's a a feeling that you should feel rubbish at the beginning of pregnancy but would you say that people should be aware of there's a limit to how rubbish you should feel and if you feel really bad you would you encourage people to go to the to the doctors and get themselves checked out I always spend the majority of that first 12 weeks in bed assuming that was that was something that this that this pregnancy would be whereas my last pregnancy I didn't suffer much but everybody says oh every pregnancy is slightly different so I assumed perhaps this was hitting me a little bit harder than what my, my previous pregnancy did with my son so again I thought I didn't really think much of it at the time and then when I did get called in to the hospital my first instinct my first thought was there's something wrong with the baby it wasn't anything else that didn't even cross my mind it's already difficult for doctors to spot leukemia and the symptoms are a bit vague and things like that but did you feel the pregnancy added an extra barrier to their understanding of what was going on as well as well as your confusion yes i think because because like you say many of the symptoms are the same and i am young um so that was an aspect to it too I think it was very, very hard for them to find that until they did my bloods, because a lot of the symptoms are pretty much the same as early pregnancy. You're tired all the time, you're not feeling well. It was only really the gums that separated it. But then again, you can get sore gums during pregnancy. But I never experienced that the first time round, so that was completely new to me. Again, that was put down to pregnancy too. So going back to when you were going to hospital then so you had been to the GP you'd had blood tests done and you were I guess you were sitting at home waiting for the results of that Uh, how long did it take for someone to get in touch with you you said the hospital phoned how was that as a time was it really scary it was about half past four in the afternoon and they phoned and, and she said that she was a consultant from New Cross she said her name was Angelique which she happened to be my lead consultant. Um, and she just she just told me to go in. She she didn't tell me what it was that I had to go in for. I did ask, um, but they said that we'll, that we'll discuss it when you get here. So that obviously gave me an idea that it was sensitive. But again, my thought was then drawn to the baby. And did you have a thought at that time about if it was about the baby, what it might be, or was it just a case of this is scary I'm not quite sure what what's going on here um I suppose the obvious thought would be that that something has happened to the baby I had previously suffered a miscarriage the year before so that so that was automatically in my head but I did think it slightly strange that that was the way they would have gone about it if it was a miscarriage yeah it's always difficult to deliver bad news on the phone um yeah doctor I guess so you're on the way to the hospital. What what happened once you arrived? 
how fast did things happen? I found my dad. He he come to collect me. Um, I'd already got my things ready. Got there. They asked me to go into a little small waiting room. And there was only me and my dad in there. And they said that somebody had been with us shortly. About two minutes later, that was when Angelique came in with about three members of a team. They did introduce themselves. So it was, it was quick. They, they didn't mess around. Obviously, with my Lord leukemia, it's, it's fast acting. So they, they knew that they didn't have much time to, to waste. Yeah, I think a lot of acute patients tell us it, it's a bit overwhelming at that point to sort of take it all in. Is that how you, is that how you felt at that point? Obviously, I'm a mum. So my first thought was, what, what, what's going to happen to my son? Where's he going to go if I'm going to be in, in hospital for the next how many months I've got things that I've got to do like I've got milk that's that's not that's not going to last that long in the fridge like I had things that that I had to do and I felt like I felt like somebody just pressed pause on my life and from that moment everything just stopped yeah so I get the next step is quite a, a difficult one for you to talk about I'm sure but obviously you were pregnant and that complicates the the process of treatment slightly would you mind talking about what what happened with the pregnancy and and what choices you had to make at that point yeah um the consultant told me I had to start my treatment pretty much straight away my my response was well what do we do about about my baby and they said that we can't start treatment whilst you're pregnant so me at the put at that time, not realising it was acute myeloid leukaemia, not realising how fast acting it was, I asked if we'd be able to hold off the chemotherapy until my pregnancy was at a safe point that I could deliver. Um, and I said that that wasn't possible. I said, if I chose to do that, then I could die and the baby could die too. So at that point, I had to, as selfish as it sounds, I've got my son, he needed me, um, and I needed my life. So I had to agree to a medical termination. Because I was 16 weeks pregnant, um, I had to actually deliver, which was tough. Following then, because I was an inpatient, I wasn't allowed to give the service for, for my child until I was out of hospital which was six months after. So you, you weren't dealing with just the shock of the, the diagnosis, but you had all that extra stuff to be dealing with at the same time. That must have been really tough. To be honest, I think at the time, I didn't emotionally deal with it. I'm very much a, if something's got to be done, it's got to be done kind of person. It's only been afterwards, really, that it's affected me more, the decisions I've had to make and questioning if it was the right choice and kind of a mental battle I think you mentioned the word selfish but I don't think anybody listening would would agree that was a selfish decision I think it's not something we can relate to unless you're going through that so um I think yeah it it's very difficult to for any of us to judge and I don't think you were selfish in the slightest with that so you you unfortunately lost your son but then you I guessing went straight into treatment and what were the next steps what did the consultant say to you 
once you were sort of ready to to begin treatment okay um so once they'd they'd obviously established it was leukemia they then took my bloods and broke it down a little bit so they told me it was acute myeloid leukemia i was then offered to take part in a medical trial which what they would do is they would put my blood into a computer system and the system would pick either one trial or the other trial suited for me it had a good success rate and if it didn't work then at least i would have contributed to some kind of medical improvement somewhere along the line so i opted in for that and i ended up on black ida trial 19. initially they told me i'd have to have three rounds but i received remission after two so i didn't need the third round after all so i think clinical trials are something that a lot of people aren't really aware of how it works until they either are directly affected or work in the area like like myself so what did you understand of the the clinical trials process and did you ask many questions or was it all a bit too fast for that yes um they they told me that, that it was a trial that was waiting to be clinically approved although the statistics they had on it and the patients that had received remission um the figures were just too good not 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 to try it i mean with the way the world is with the new medicines i think things can only get better so that was kind of my reasoning for it they did give me a huge pamphlet on it um i don't think i ever got around to reading all all of it but there was so many people there to ask if i was unsure of anything yeah i think a lot of uh, patients with acute leukemia talk about how great their team were while they were in hospital is did you find them really really helpful during that yeah time? um when when people say that that they're a family in there they really are like even down to the guy who bought me my breakfast every morning he knew exactly what i wanted how many sugars in my tea how i like my toast and because you're in there for so long as well and it's so so institutionalized in there and they're the only people that you see sometimes because when you're when your immune system's too low and you're not allowed to see anybody they're the only people that you see and there's so many wonderful people i met i'm struggling to even explain how how wonderful they are but they're literally like angels walking on earth they are so wonderful yeah i think it's a it's a shame that the whole COVID crisis has made people only just realise the the values in some ways of the NHS. But um, for blood cancer patients, they've always been amazing. So that's good to hear. Really good to hear. Anything about treatment that you wanted me to ask that I haven't already covered? I wow. did suffer with a few side effects from the medication. Um, a few of the medications that I took interacted with each other. I did end up with a full body rash. It was head to toe, blotches, itchy, red. It was awful. But if there ever anything was like that, that that did happen to go wrong, my mind was put at ease straight away. They'd come and they'd fix it. I don't know what they did. I don't know what medication they gave me, but it fixed it. I suffered a lot of infections whilst I was in there. I, I actually caught a hospital bred virus as well. My left lung collapsed whilst I was in there. 
I went to ICU three times, which they actually said was quite rare because usually when you end up in the intensive care unit, it's because you've been at home and your illness or or whatever's happening to you has got that bad that it's uncontrollable. So you go to ICU. Whereas the idea of whilst you're already in hospital, whatever's wrong with you should already be being con- controlled. So they said that, they were, that I was the first person that had gone down there three times and actually left all three times. I was going to say that's a bad thing, but I guess it's a good thing that you did leave, but oh, not very good to set some records in terms of number of times ending up there. But I think a lot of people don't realise that treatments for cancer are they're improving but there's there's still some things I think we'd like to see change and I guess the side effects are are one of those things that need improving still so where are you at now in terms of your treatment pathway I am not on any treatment whatsoever I'm not on any medication the only thing I do have to partake in is a bone marrow biopsy every three months and that's just to check the level of cancer cells in, in my system and as long as they're below a certain level I'm classed as remission. been in remission since August last year. Yeah so I'm, I'm, I'm doing really really well. All my hair has come back as you can see. Um, I feel much healthier, much much healthier. Obviously, you're feeling well physically, but in terms of how it's affected you mentally long term going through a serious illness, how would you say it's had a long term impact on how you view life, maybe? It's improved my outlook on life. The things that I used to stress about, I don't, I don't stress about anymore. I kind of think if it doesn't matter tomorrow, then it's not going to matter to me now. I do wo- worry about the recurrence of it. That's something that plays in my head daily. But I'm still here and I made it. There's so many people out there that aren't in the position to be able to say that. And I am. So for every day that I am, I'm going to live for that day. And I guess we haven't really talked about the impact on your family and you were talking about your son. How how was the treatment period for the rest of your family? How did you cope with that? If I'm honest, it was my little boy that that kept us all sane. Because if anybody had come to see me, they'd bring him with them. So we all held it together because we had to. He was only three at the time, so he didn't really understand what was going on. He just knew that mummy was sick. And then he went and got his hair cut the same, the same day that I decided to shave my head. Um, so we kind of made, made that a bit of a joke that, oh, mummy's got no hair. My family, I know my dad struggled a lot. I don't have contact with my mum. My dad struggled a lot in silence and I think probably impacted him more, more so than anybody else. But his work were fantastic. They let him take six months off work. My little boy went and stayed with him. So they made it kind of a, it was just a six months sleepover with granddad, really. He was okay. My son was. My son was okay. It was us, really, that, that struggled more. Yeah, I guess kids have the the innocence that they don't understand these things that sort of protects them a little bit don't they yeah like not once when he had to leave that hospital after a visit not once did he cry on the way out it was always bye mommy and he'd just go and that made it so much easier for me because if he if he was yearning for me then I'd I don't know how how I'd have managed yeah 
And it's interesting what you say about your dad and how he perhaps didn't cope as, as well. Would I think we struggle as a charity to get carers and, or family members and extended people to get in touch if they need support. Would you would you encourage anybody listening who is a relative of someone with blood cancer to reach out if they need it? Most definitely. I mean, having cancer is tough, but seeing somebody you love go through it, knowing that you are utterly perilous and you're praying and hoping that the medication does what it's supposed to do, it's got to take a toll eventually. And my dad didn't turn to anybody for support. I know he didn't because he he's quite a strong man and he won't do that and very I think if he did he would have coped a hell of a lot better a hell of a lot better and there's so many people out there that you can speak to it's just he wanted to be seen as the strong one whereas in a situation like that you're all struggling and you all need support yeah yeah that's a really great message for us to get out get out there get people to get in touch if they need us regardless of who you are so my next question is about again where you are now but I've seen on Facebook I know you you like to sort of share your story and how you are now with with people what is it that drives you to talk about your story like we are today what what are you hoping to achieve by doing that awareness because I didn't know for so long and perhaps if I'd have seen something similar to what I post then perhaps I'd have queried it that little bit sooner. I mean I'm very lucky that it wasn't too late but for those that perhaps have no idea what what leukemia is if they know the signs and the symptoms then it's always going to be in the back of the head and they can get it seen to earlier rather than later and then they could still be here like me. That's definitely our aim as well. And what about talking to other patients? Is that something you do a lot in terms of supporting other people or is it something you'd like to see more of maybe? Me as a patient, the only support, I didn't reach out for support from charities. But looking back now, I think perhaps I'd have put less pressure on my family if I'd have done that. I've got a few a few friends um, on my Facebook that are going through similar things with, with family and things like that. And I find that people will say, well, how was it for you? Or, or well, well, what happens next? And I can only advise as much as what my experience was. So that would where I'd direct them to, to a charity or an organisation like Leukemia Care that offers the advice and support that, that I cannot give. <laughs> and and what about obviously crazy times? There's been a, a bit of a pandemic going on, and has this time affected you in any way? So, for example, some blood cancer patients have been told they're particularly vulnerable to COVID. Has that been something you've been told, or are you far enough in remission that it doesn't matter anymore? Yeah. Um, the first lockdown, I had a, a letter come through saying that I should self-isolate. So that was very tough, being as, as it's just me and my son in these four walls. But I had family and friends help out with shopping and things like that. But as long as you've been as safe as you can possibly be, then you'll be keeping everybody else as safe as they can be too. 
So I think as regards to COVID, if everybody's being safe, then the vulnerable won't be vulnerable. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. We should all be looking out for other people during this whole thing. I think that's definitely a good message to get out there. So I guess the, the final question I wanted to ask you, and you've kind of given a couple of tips already, but if you wanted to give a tip to someone who was newly diagnosed or something you would have wanted to hear yourself back when you were first diagnosed, what, what message would you want to, to give that person? Have faith in the medical team that you've got because there were times where perhaps I'd question something um, and and that explained to me why this was the best decision for me, even though at the time it didn't feel that way. The medical team is, is the best family that you can get whilst you're in hospital. Trust everything they say, take all their advice and just have some faith. You can make it through. You can do it. No, that's really great. Thank you for, for sharing that. So thank you, Zoe, for talking to us today. Um, you're very difficult. The parts of your story are quite difficult to listen to and I'm sure they're difficult for you to talk about, but really important for us to share all the things you've said and I'm sure people will find this podcast particularly particularly great to listen to. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening and I will see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leukemia Chatters. For more information and support from Leukemia Care, go to our website, leukemiacare.org.uk or call our helpline 08088 010 444. See you next month.